Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building a bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this deep sales and LinkedIn has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn sales navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn sales navigator and get a 60 day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60 day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. If you're going to do Airbnb, Number one, first and foremost, don't be that investor that buys in a good market and thinks just because you put it up on the platform, you're going to make money. And also, don't be one of those investors that doesn't do your due diligence on the fact that there is still a lot of regulation to get sorted through. The one thing about the government, when there's a new idea, there's something new that comes to market, is they take a while to sort through figuring out how they want to get it under their thumb. And therefore, that means there's going to be volatility in the policy behind it. What's going on, guys? Welcome into today's episode of Money Moves. What up? Today's a special episode. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. Happy, happy, happy. Today, we've got a great show for you guys. As always, your host, Matty A, my co-host, Mr. Brian Breedwell. What up, y'all? We cover all things stocks, real estate investing, and personal finance to help you on your wealth building journey. Mm. We've got some good news updates for you. Mm -hmm. Of course, updates on the stock market, some real estate. Where do we want to start today? You lead the way, I'm out. I will follow. Well, we're going to be covering, most importantly, of course, the bull market talk. And really, sounds like we've turned a corner. So we got some data to kind of support where and why those sentiments are gaining a lot of steam and momentum right now, even with some potential uh, Fed rate hikes still on the horizon. We've got Airbnb bust potential data coming out this week. Some big decisions from the Supreme Court. What do you need to be wealthy in the US? Per Charles Schwab, there's a specific number Mm -hmm. that you might agree or disagree with. We'll cover that. And of course, some real estate data that has come out recently. Is the market slowing? Or are we just getting ready to start on another bull run in the real estate market as well? So with that being said, this was a big week for the Supreme Court. Huge. And it happened uh, end of last week and then over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it kind of kicked off with first on the docket was the 
affirmative action, which, yeah. you know, some people are happy with, some people are unhappy with. I think it's great. I think you, you really got to, in my opinion, I wanted to make sure because anytime you start talking about race and how that ties into people's decision making and their access to things, right? It can become a very touchy subject. And I saw uh, a post that I thought was a really good analogy for kind of breaking this down, which was in terms of affirmative action, because there's a lot of people of color that were very upset about it. Yes. And one person who I always find, even though people love to hate her, I think she's extremely intelligent and the way she delivers information is very digestible. But the way she does it is kind of... um, It, it comes off as almost too intelligent for some people and so they don't like her. Candace Owens. So she made, put a post out this week that I really liked, which was, imagine if the NBA declined LeBron James because there were too many black people in the NBA and they wanted racial diversity. So they instead allowed Ed Sheeran onto the Lakers in his place. That is exactly what Asian Americans have been enduring for decades at Harvard. If white people would like to have a greater presence in the NBA, then they are going to have to work at their jump shots. If black people would like to have a greater presence at Harvard, then they are going to have to work harder at their academics. And that was basically her point, right? She said, I'm not bothered by the fact that black Americans dominate Asian and white Americans in basketball and football. Neither am I. We are simply better at those sports and the best players in the world who train the hardest and therefore score the most points should play. And because of their skill set, they have earned the right to have that spot. Yes. So I think it kind of goes back to the same thing when we're talking about this ruling of affirmative action in the context that it was ruled in. Kind of the same thing, right? It's I would say that that's it's not the same, it's same, same, but different. Obviously, it's it's a different situation, different dynamic, but it's different the same, context. It's the same, it's but at the root two, of the issue, right? It's two plus two equals four, and so does five minus one. It's the same ending. You know, you're doing a yep. different, and so in my opinion, you should not bring somebody's race into it. It should be purely on the merits of like, are you the best? I remember when I played in sports and my dad was the coach. My dad would bench me sometimes because I was not the best player. And that's a, that's a similar example. Just because I was the coach's son did not mean I was getting the most minutes. Um, I don't mind that sports are, and it's just a fact of the matter, that are dominated by African-American, Asian-American, um, you know, you see soccer is more European. Mm -hmm. um, well, actually, they're pretty good split, but a lot more European and, and American soccer players than there are American white American football players. Yep, it just it just that's the way it is, and it's because those athletes are just better at those positions. And I don't have a problem with that. I want to see the best people in the best positions. I didn't have, you know, I went to a state school, so I didn't have like a crazy uh, academia to go, to get behind and stuff, but. My school was pretty diversified. There was a bunch of black people. There was a bunch of Asian people. There was a bunch of men. There was more women. Um, but it was, it, I, I just don't, the school's job was to take the people that could do best and perform the best and create a culture on the campus that everybody could perform well while trying to balance, hey, we're going to take some people from this end, take some people from that end. But 
if you're a school, you're judging people on their academics and you want to represent a high average GPA at your school. That makes you look good. Harvard didn't get to looking the way it does today by accepting people with 2.7 GPAs. They just don't do that. I went to Sonoma State. If you had a 3.1 GPA, but you had some sports and it looks like you took some good classes, they would let you kind of squeak in if you were a local person. Yeah. You're not going to get that at Harvard. And I mean, that's common sense would lead you to understand why. It's not what they're looking for. If you go to a a racetrack and you have a Corvette, you're still going to get smoked by all the Ferraris and Lamborghinis. It doesn't, you know, you all have a sports car. It's just a different thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Again, I think finally the pendulum is starting to swing back and people are starting to use common sense on some things. It, it definitely feels like it's, it's swinging back. If anything, I think it just shows that, you know, the, the constitution and, and how well thought out it was structured and put together. Mind you, it's not perfect. No. And they don't get it right 100% of the time based on what your beliefs are and your values are and things like that. But for the most part, it does a pretty good job of when one thing swings too far in one direction finds a way to you know swing it back and when it swings too far back in the other direction swing it back right and i think this was one of those scenarios where they you know are again going back to the fact that we just want the best yes. of whoever that is whatever they are whether they identify as this whether they look like that whether they talk this way we don't want to be making decisions based on boxes that are being checked from a, a context that is not serving individuals for performing at the level that they should be performing at to earn their right into that position. And that's one of the issues I've had with the Biden administration this entire time is yeah. it's been to meet a certain, you know, um, Soft spot in people. I think hearts. it's to yeah. to meet a certain narrative and to to check boxes on a specific. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, it looks like a laundry list of what what do my voters? How do I get the most votes from people? How do I um, how do I pander to my base? Right. Instead of it being something that is based on who is the best for the job, and if literally right. if everybody that was best for the job was African American, I'd be like, good. I want the best for the job, and and. And if everybody that was best for the job was white, it'd be the same way or Asian. Or, and it's just not that. It's just not the case. Just like every professional athlete in the dominated sports that are African-American are not all African-American. They're still going to be white and Asian Yep. and, and, and everybody in between. Um, but you're generally going to have you know, people that are the best in that, especially in sports. I mean, it, the, the, in sports, the, it's like a known bias yeah, all the way back to the playground. Yeah, you know who who do you pick to come on your team? You pick the biggest and the best on the playground, right? It's the same thing. Yep. Um. So I again bring back bullying, twenty twenty three. Bring back bullying, twenty twenty three. Uh, next on the docket was, of course, student loan debt. Yeah. And what Biden and the administration tried to do, essentially forgiving Forgive. that yeah. four hundred billion in debt. Yep. Supreme Court said nope. That is not going to be something that uh, the American taxpayer is going shoulder. to shoulder. That is not legal. And essentially, they struck that down. Now, yep. I, I get it. There's, there's a lot of people that you know went about it the right way. 
I took out over $100,000 in student loans. Yep. And have yeah. been working their butts off to pay it off. Yep. Right. And, and that wouldn't be fair to them. I also understand there's a small portion or a good chunk of people that, you know, got into predatory loans. Yep. And then there are just people that shouldn't have taken loans at all. And ultimately, it's a very muddied pool of individuals that kind of fall into this category. And yet, it still is one of those things where I think people need to be responsible and accountable for their actions and the decisions yeah. they make, whether yeah. it was right, wrong, a mixture of both. At the end of the day, Supreme Court said, this isn't going to happen. You're not getting this you know, forgiven. And now we're starting to see the Biden administration get back to work and trying to figure out another loophole for this with the Higher Education Act. And ultimately, they're trying to just find a different path for this forgiveness. I kind of thought about this. And I mean, I paid my... I'm, I'm, I still have $16,000 in student loans. I just refuse to pay them off because why would I? Um, a lot of people like that. Yep. But I don't know why they just don't go back to the schools that issued the loans. Because it, what it was is it was, a, it was a joint effort between the lending institutions and the, um, and the schools. Once the schools figured out that the lending institutions would lend a 17 or 18 year old an unlimited amount of money as long as they could justify it with an expense uh, sheet from the schools, which they had on file, the schools just started raising their cost per unit and their tuition costs and their book costs and their uh, housing and all that stuff. And so did then the lenders gave out more and more and more money. And we're talking about when I went to college, we're talking 2010 uh, area. Interest rates were at like at zero percent, and where I'm, my loans were at like eleven. So I would say they go back to the schools and they fit, they do an audit and kind of come up with an average of okay, this school did a lot more than this school, and you just take it from the school's profits, and then you subsidize uh, payers with the school's money, and it's say okay, well, you know, you have an eleven percent loan through Sally May or through whoever. But it really should be about six percent. So we're gonna we're gonna glean the other five percent from the institution, or they could take a cut off the top from the um, the, the school because honestly, it was a collaboration between the two, um, and that was one of the biggest kind of you know let's let's talk to people and tell them and convince them that a piece of paper will change their life. Come and get all these student loans. Come and get into a bunch of debt. Don't worry about paying off right now. You'll just pay when you get when you're retired or not retired when you're done with school, and because you'll have a job. But it doesn't work that way, you know. These, you know, that so many people coming in and so many people flooding the job market that there was too much competition, mm -hmm. and so people ended up with one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in student loans on a liberal arts degree, and they can never pay that off because that's not going to drive the income. Yeah. For your how it should end up is for your degree, you should be limited on the amount of money you could take because the the income potential from that is just honest to God not going to be high enough. Yeah, and, and that's how if we're going to underwrite people for car loans on their credit worthiness, we should underwrite them on hey, what's the reality of you making a lot of money as a painter? Very low, so we're not going to lend you a lot of money to go to school for that. But yep. what's the reality of you making a lot of money and having a big financial impact on the on as a doctor, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a yep. as a teacher, which should be paid higher? We'll lend you money for that. So that that's that's ultimately what needs to happen and what should have happened. And uh, educational institutions should be held liable. For, yeah, I was definitely loans. of all of kind of the Supreme Court rulings this week. This is the one that I thought made 
the most, most sense. Yes. You're talking about 87% of Americans who do not have student loan debt should not be forced to pick up the bill Damn, for the 14%, the 13, 14% with student loan debt. And, and many of those are over the course of the last couple of decades, like you said, a lot of arts degrees and a lot of, you know, things. And, and, and mind you, I think the, the accountability and where the attention needs to go back to is, is the lending institutions, right? Cause, the, cause that's where obviously there's a big domino that fell. It impacted a lot of people negatively without any accountability of really who tipped the domino over in the first place. Yeah. Last one was the government cannot force speech that violates religious conviction, anti-discrimination policing um, over free speech. I know that was a big one for a lot of people that um, obviously with, you know, religious beliefs and background, protecting those rights um, and essentially the government can't force you to do or say certain things that, you know, your religious beliefs don't allow you to align do. with. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's important too. I think that also kind of goes to protect people on the college campuses that are trying to speak out against things that are not necessarily in line with what they believe, which should be respected. And I think too, you know, this is just a good reminder that no matter how you feel about the Biden administration or how you felt about the previous administration or really any administration, right? It, it shows how special our constitution is and the democratic process in our republic and, and the fact that it, it does work, you yeah. know? And, you know, yeah, the, even though there are certain rule rulings on certain topics that maybe you do or don't agree with in the past, present, or future, I think you can still trust in the fact that this was set up the right way and there are, like you said, those checks and balances. So we recently heard some rumors about Mr. Gary Gensler, head of the yeah. SEC. A lot of people are talking about him potentially stepping down stepping out what was going on there what what's the latest on that and why why would that be important to any particular segment of investors or the market as a whole i think it was more of a smear campaign rumor cuz i haven't heard any validation of that in fact i've heard the opposite um i don't think he's going to step down as sec chair and i don't think he I think he would have to resign and then the president has to accept it. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's like something that he can just quit. Um, and, why, and why would it matter if he did? Like, is uh, he that because important? It, it's a, it would be an implication that his, the, you know, recently he's been going pretty hard in the paint on uh, crypto. Yeah. And regulating crypto, which I was telling people was in the pipeline. I was hearing multiple reports that it was going to happen. Shocker. Here it is. Um, and, I I don't know if the federal government is upset as regular investors are. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're behind it. Um, so I don't I don't see them. Even if people wanted him to resign, I don't see them supporting that. Um, I I did see that they released some like information about some personal stuff. Um, I, again smear campaign in my opinion because I have there's no more talk about it right now and it would be all over the news if he was resigning mm. um, and he's not he's just not at least right now I'm recording this on July 4th like I said so I haven't heard any news that he is resigning um, I don't think he should he hasn't done a terrible job or a good job which means he's done a good job yeah um, he does too good it's going to be too partisan 
doesn't do a good job, it's going to be too bipartisan. So you go right, you know, too too much people on both sides saying, "See, we told you," or "See, we should have had it." So if it's neutral, which I think it is, it's the best. Honestly, if there's no movement, it's kind of the best. So the majority of Wall Street investors believe stocks have entered a new bull market, and the U.S. economy will skirt a recession in 2023. No soft landing, no hard landing, no landing at all potentially, no according. Landing to the new CNBC Delivering Alpha Investor Survey. 61% of 400 respondents, which um, included chief investment officers, equity strategists, portfolio managers, uh, believe the market has entered a new bull run, while 39% think that this is a bear market rally. The market has managed to climb a wall of worries so far this year, including rate hikes, debt ceiling debate, and a series of bank failures. The S&P 500 is about to end the first half with flying colors up nearly 15% after four straight winning months in a row. The performance of tech-heavy NASDAQ uh, stocks is even more impressive, up 30% this year, um, heavily being driven by Wall Street's obsession with AI. Are we about to take off on another bull market run? I think one year ago, about today or this month, uh, last year, I had said that I think the no landing was starting to have a case because it was too, had to go too much one way for hard, too much the other way for soft. Things had to be too good and there was not, there were still going to be things that weren't great and things didn't look bad enough to have a hard landing. So I, I think I had mentioned, I think the no landing was probably a good scenario. And I think I've said it a couple other times. No, you said it. I've said, no, I don't think it, think no landing, no landing, no landing. Here it is. And then about three months ago or two months ago, we talked about AI potentially being the kind of the saving grace of the market. Yeah. And then like a week or two later, that was starting to become the talk of the town. Talk of the town on that. So I have said since last uh, November that October lows were probably in and that we had started a new bull cycle. It was going to be choppy for the first six to eight months. Here we are eight months later and it's starting to smooth out and look a lot better. Um, and I'm going to stick with that. The thing that's going to be, that's kind of got me thrown for a loop is the rate hike expectations that are, that are 86% chance. I know last week, I think we were in mid seventies, 10% lower. Yeah. And now it is as of today, 86% chance of a hike. Will that take some momentum out of this next run or? How is the rate hike going to factor in in the July meeting? So the market's seemingly priced in that there will be a rate hike, meaning that it's kind of prepared for that. Yep. But well, I don't know. I still don't know if there will be. I know there's only a 13% chance based on the Fed futures right now that there'll be a pause. But I, I again, the multitude of fund managers and economists and everything that are saying, hey, Inflation data is going to come out and catch up by the time they need to make that uh, decision, which is in about 22 days. And I am in the camp with them that there should be another pause. Um, I still believe there's going to be two to three rate cuts this year at the end of the year. That's probably going to be all in quarter four. Because um, as we cruise into quarter three right now, I don't, I don't really think it's uh, the potential for a rate cut is out there. It would still cause the market to shoot up too much. If they do hike, I don't think it's going to do anything besides have a small pullback for the day. 
Um, if they don't hike and they pause, we should have a huge pop in the market, which I would love and I would hope and um, expect that to be a possibility. Um, but we were in the same scenario about six days out from the last rate hike and then it flip-flopped three days before. So anything can really happen. That just goes to show you the velocity and um, of money in the stock market, how fast it can switch back and forth. So I'm still staying in the pause. I think a pause would be better for the economy as a whole because the backwards-looking inflation data is catching up. Shelter data is catching up to be down. Um, how the um, unemployment data is good, even though the job markets are uh, the job market is tight, or excuse me, loosening up a little bit, which is good. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of good stuff. Again, Friday and Thursday are going to be huge. If, if the Friday report is um, too good, meaning there's too many jobs added, that's going to be a negative and that's going to push the Fed futures even higher. Um, so I'm hoping there's a moderate amount of jobs added, but kind of at the expectation level. We have Airbnb data trickling in. Has Airbnb officially gone bust? The vacation rental platform reportedly saw close to a 50% decline in revenues per listing last month in some cities compared to the same period the previous year, according to data by analytics company All the Rooms. The price drops come as the number of available properties surged 18% from the same time last year, with AirDNA reporting that the platform now hosts 1.4 million active listings. Still a spokesperson for Airbnb told Bloomberg, this last week, that the numbers are not consistent with their own data. Mm. I was in our last um, GoBundance meeting, a lot of guys have short term rentals, and we had a big thread and conversation going on about this. And while certain markets are experiencing, you know, definitely some slowdown, I think really a lot of what it has to do is, with is the fact that. You know, Airbnb became this hot, amazing, sexy way of becoming, you know, an investor. Mm. And there were certain markets around the country that just got way oversaturated. Phoenix. You just, yeah, you just saw a ton of inventory hit those markets. And while they were great markets to travel to, the demand just couldn't keep up with it. And ultimately, you know, when you're looking at, you know, a certain amount of listings in one particular market, the people, and here's what I took away, and I think this is something that is important to think about if you're an Airbnb investor, because I've had a handful of people reaching out about short term rentals, Airbnbs. I still think Airbnbs, short term rentals are going to do and perform well over the long term if there's, here's the, the asterisk next to it. If your listing is focused on experiences and amenities, being in a good market will no longer mean by default that you're going to do and perform well from a financial perspective. Because in certain markets, and most of the good markets that people like to travel to, like to vacation to year-round, they just got oversaturated. They got overbought. Yeah. And the ones that are still doing really well in those markets are the owners that aren't just relying on the fact that you got an Airbnb in San Diego and that's going to equal people wanting to stay at your property year-round and your occupancy is going to stay here, your profit's going to stay here. It's the people that really thought about creating cool, eclectic experiences in their homes that pair with the location, that have quality amenities, 
and quality experiences tied to those. Yep. So that's where I think that's that's really the linchpin to if you're going to do Airbnb, number one, first and foremost, don't be that investor that you know buys in a good market and thinks just because you put it up on the platform, you're going to make money. And also, don't be one of those investors that doesn't do your due diligence on the fact that there is still a lot of regulation to get sorted through. The one thing about the government, when there's a new idea, there's something new that comes to market, is they take a while to sort through figuring out how they want to get it under their thumb. And therefore, that means there's going to be volatility in the policy behind it. You've seen it in certain markets all around the country where they're ultimately still trying to determine how many permits do we give out? Actually, you know what? We're going to revoke half of those permits. Now we're going to actually you know, go and put three times as many permits out there. You know what? We're going to change the taxation on this. They're continuing to work through policy. And if one of your markets that you're considering investing in has already worked through that, then that's a good thing. Because then you know the rules of the game that you have to underwrite accordingly to. But if you don't, I'd be very careful about, most importantly, underwrite the investment based on it being a long-term rental, worst-case scenario. Yeah. If it's a break-even and you stay in the black or it's a little bit of profit, but it's long-term, at least you know worst-case scenario if the government pulls something crazy and you have to revert back to a long-term rental, it's not going to bleed you. Well, yep. a lot of people did not do that. No, they ran and into good numbers. Exactly. They ran their numbers based on this blue sky. Everything's going to be perfect and rosy. And I'm going to make three, four times the amount of money because I'm doing short-term rentals than I would with a long-term rental so I can pay way more. And therefore, when things shifted and changed for a lot of people in a lot of those markets, well, those people are getting hurt. At the same time, those markets became oversaturated as well. So it's a double whammy. So that's where I think we're starting to see some of this Airbnb data come out. Is Airbnb going away? No. Is short-term rentals and travel and families and people looking for cool experiences and cool locations going away? No. But you have to be that much better. You have to elevate your game when it comes to your actual investment and it getting the most return for you possible. So just something to think about. I stand out from the crowd. The federal government, FDIC, and others released new guidance this week. I've never heard of this before. Calling on financial mm, firms yeah. and banks to work prudently and constructively with creditworthy borrowers in commercial real estate. This guidance comes as nearly $400 billion in commercial real estate debt comes due during a nationwide downsizing by office tenants over the course of the next 12 months. So... Very interesting to hear. Be sweet. Yeah. I, I've, have you ever heard of the Fed like giving that? I mean, I know why they're doing it, right? Because it's, it's. I mean, we're talking, this is COVID. Just a, yeah. Yeah. But I it guess. was emergency. It wasn't like, it was emergency order. It yeah. was like to insurance companies, hey, if somebody's not paying their premium, you can't close their insurance policy on them. Well, and that was based on like what we knew. Yes. This is like this is, pending, yeah. looming potential down the road, yep. you know, 1.4 trillion in potential, you know, in, in debt coming due. And it could be a bad situation for certain people. Maybe the weather, the I think storm. It's better than if, I think it would be better to say, because how I interpret that is, hey, if you have lenders or borrowers, that are generally of a higher credit worthiness. So institutions, 
And they may, so, you know, this may be their dog, but they're doing good on other stuff. I, it would behoove you and the economy to work with them and find out terms that are amicable that everybody could work through and be profitable versus you going the traditional route and, and seizing or closing on that business. Because honestly, the end of that is because there ain't nobody coming to buy it. Yeah, right. Exactly. So you better figure it out with them because I we don't really, we want to just let you know, we don't think there's anybody to buy it. Yeah. Well, we don't want to back on our books. Yep. So you better play nice with them if you don't want to back on your books. Yeah. And this is from the people that choose, you know, that you're paying on your overnight rates and that have a lot yep. of, have a lot of decision on the lending on how you make money. So let's, we're in bed together. Let's act like. Yep. Two years after the multifamily sector's peak in investment activity, Commercial owners are slated to face a, an 8 billion wall of maturities this fall. More than 4 billion in commercial mortgage-backed security loans tied to multifamily properties will mature in October. According to a report from Gray Capital, November isn't expected to be much better with slightly less than 4 billion in CMBS loans set to mature. We've already seen a little bit of an uptick in delinquencies in multifamily properties. Um, I think we talked about it on the last call, and yeah. I know of a handful of uh, syndicators and multifamily investors. Some personally, some through you know mutual relationships and connections that are experiencing some trouble right now. They're experiencing you know the capex budgets and plans and timelines that they had for you know optimizing their assets to then raise their rents. Obviously, you know facing some headwinds there. Yep, those timelines extending, those budgets increasing and not hitting the mark on getting to market as rents have continued to soften and or plateau in certain markets, that impacts pro formas and the financial models of certain deals. Many of those investors went on short-term arms just to get the, you know, the properties across the finish line. Those are resetting. I don't think too many people thought that they would be seeing rates where they saw them or where we're seeing them at today, let alone yep. if we see another hike, right? Or two more hikes. Depending oh. on when that debt comes due in October and or November, that may not fare well for those types of individuals. So I think there's just going to be some opportunistic buying opportunities for the people that are ready, got dry powder, are good operators, got good relationships. Those are going to start trickling out are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast. 
And trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. And then on the single family market, we've continued to see week after week inventory um, slowly creep up. Nothing drastic. Altos reports that active single family inventory was up 1.3% week over week. Inventory was down 1.3% compared to the same week in 2022 and down 51.9% compared to the same week in 2019. Again, nothing major there. I think seasonality also is tying into this a little bit as people look at maybe doing some transitioning, some, you know, shifting of, you know, with kids out of school, moving in warmer months, this is normally that time to do it. Yep. However, we did see uh, pending home sales uh, based on signed contracts drop 2.7% to a uh, five-month low, the lowest level since December. Now, it's good. NAR did put out a report this week that basically kind of gave some good data and said, hey, look, pending, slow pending doesn't mean weak demand. Pending home sales, right, is just a way to kind of show the velocity at which things are moving, but it doesn't mean that the market is dropping. So I think that's exactly what the Fed wanted to see, right? Was yeah, to, it allows the inventory to catch a up a little bit too. Even if it's an artificial catch up, it still allows the data to show that. Yep. And then the last article that I found kind of interesting was, will boomers create the next wave of big inventory? And there was... Uh, an economist that does a lot of store or does a lot of data and research around, um, you know, inventory and kind of mm -hmm. buying and selling booms, and he's hit the last few, um, and and this one I thought was interesting, basically stating that uh, boomers selling their homes in the second half of the 2020s and lasting until 2040, as many of them get to the basically age 77 or older is when family members begin to start moving them more into retirement communities. Got it. And these homes that they own, many of them will be somewhat older by then. Most will need some updating, but many of these homes will be in prime locations. Now the leading edge of the baby boom generation is 77 years old on average. And his view was we will see a pickup in downsizing later in this decade into the 2030s, um, probably not as we uh, hit the tail end of the 2020s. So thought that was interesting, interesting. But still, we've seen US home sales have risen by 20% this year, even with some of the data of slowing pending home sales, mm -hmm. inventory jumping up, the single family market is still extremely strong. With that being said, we'll, we'll end it on this. Musk and Zuckerberg cage match pay-per-view would cost an estimated $100, bringing over $1 billion mm. and would be the biggest fight ever in the history of the world. They're like, both of these dudes are training with some legit MMA guys. Musk was training with some people this last week. Uh, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's been training for a minute. 
And I think the mayor of Rome reached out and said, you guys want to do this at the Coliseum? We're trying I mean, to get a snippet of that Billy. Who 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 do you who do you have as of right now? Who do you think would win? I I do believe just because he's way bigger, Elon I think would win. You think so? Yeah, he would slap the sunscreen right off of Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> I think Zuckerberg, seeing him on the mat, the dude is like yeah, but he's he's a big old dork. But like at the same like time, sixty pounds lighter though. Okay, I, I don't know. They're kind of like oh, the, Elon is stack like up on way the card bigger. But Zuckerberg's been training, and it's MMA. For, They're gonna be for, kicking in for punching. quite some time. Yeah, with headgear, of course. Oh, but man, I still, I want to. I would. If uh, Zuckerberg would got knocked out. Do you know the first of all, Tesla stock would skyrocket, and then Meta's would tank. <laughs> Um, just because investors are hilarious, but that will that that's gonna be hilarious. This is the last thing we'll end on. What do you need to be wealthy in the U.S. to be wealthy in America? Per Charles Schwab, you need at least two point two million dollars. Yeah, do you agree or disagree with that? More than that, that's only about one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year of passive income. So I, that's not wealthy to me. Yeah, that's a lot of assets on paper, but passive income wise, I don't know. I think if, you know, for the average person, if they were retired and they, you know, depend, I guess it depends on where they're at in their life cycle, but 110K for an average retiree, I think they could stretch that, make it. Oh, work. yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just, you know, I would, I would think probably somewhere around four to five million is probably where I would say well, you're wealthy. So break that down a little bit because you and I have actually talked about this before, right? Of like, if you get to a certain level of wealth, or maybe my question has always been like, what level of wealth do you need to have invested in the market to generate a healthy amount of annual every million Every million dollars is about 50 grand a year. Um, and you're going to be hard-pressed to generate that. Uh, and that's net of fees. You're going to be hard-pressed to generate that with like a million dollars piece of real estate. You'd be hard. It's hard to make $50,000 a year on that. Yeah. Um, and it, and you can raise that distribution rate by about two and a half percent per year compounded with, with the same amount of money. So about every million is going to get you 50 grand. So I, and so get to four, you, you might be about 200, 200, about 200. And then you can increase that by about two and a half percent compounded for the rest of your life and continue to earn what's called a positive arbitrage more than you're, you're making more than you're taking. Which I love that. I think, you know, for those that are listening, right? And you're looking for a rule of thumb of conservatively, obviously everybody's got different allocations with their investments, different makeup of your portfolio. But that was one of my questions to you when you and I first started hanging out years ago was like, hey, you know, if I wanted to make $250,000 a year, how much money would I need to give you in order to do that? And that That's was kind 5 million. Of, and that was your answer, yeah, right? Yeah, was like, hey, five. right around 5 million. Allocated intelligently, right, and and invested accordingly, you can pull between two to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. And and for most people, right, that might seem like and feel like a big number, but based on your age and where you're at, I think it's a good kind of rule of thumb and measuring stick to figure out as you want to climb that wealth tier. If you're intelligently invested with your money, you know, pulling down that kind of income every year gives you something to aim for. And yeah. maybe work into your plan. Yeah, twenty five hundred dollars a month into like a brokerage account for ten years, you should have uh, over a million dollars, maybe a, maybe a million and some change, and then you know you double that account every about three years, three to five. So um, 
it comes fast. First million is the hardest to get to. And then 100%. after that, it just goes really fast. Yep. Yep. And so if you guys want to know more about that plan, you want to talk about that plan, you want somebody to dig in and look at your current plan, don't forget to take advantage of the free financial x-ray where Ryan and his team will dig into your financial portfolio, look at all your fees, look at your allocations, look at your plan, give you any feedback, and also build you out one that they think could be either a little bit better or tell you, hey, you're looking good. Um, but you can take advantage of that for free. All of our Million of Mindcast listeners, just text the word X-Ray to 844-447-1555. And for my credit investors that want to get on my deals list, look at passive income opportunities, uh, you can text the word DEALS to 844-447-1555. Don't forget to check out MillionaireMindcast.com, all the great tools, resources, and products we have available for you guys. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th. Have fun. Enjoy, be safe, safe, celebrate freedom. This country is definitely not perfect, but we are damn, I mean, by a mile, the best damn country in the world, in my opinion. I am grateful for all the people who have sacrificed over the course of so many generations Mm -hmm. to create the world that we all get to live in and enjoy today. If you are an active duty uh, or past um, servicemen or women, um, just Big thanks, big shout out to you, all the sacrifices that you've made uh, in your own life, in your family's life for all of us, uh, forever grateful. That being said, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March 2 million and beyond. We'll see you guys in next week's episode. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of Money Moves. Be sure to tune in next week for more news and updates. And if you got some value from today's show, all we ask is that you take two minutes and leave a review in iTunes, where by doing so, you're gonna get entered into win a $100 gift card. Also, don't forget to take advantage of Ryan's free financial x-ray on your investment portfolio. And to do so, all you have to do is text the word x-ray to 844-447-1555. What we have found by offering this out is most people have no idea what they're being charged from a fee perspective, or really, in most cases, overcharged and whether or not their current investment and financial plan is actually aligned with what they're trying to accomplish. And this is something that Ryan and his amazing team do for all of our listeners for free. So be sure to take them up on that. Again, that's x-ray, one word, 844-447-1555. Also, if you're an accredited investor and you're not on my deals list, be sure to text the word DEALS to 844-447-1555 to be notified of the private investment offerings my team and I put out. And last, don't forget to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family at MillionaireMindcast.com. Whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, mastermind events, calculators, the Rich Life Planner for those looking to take their goal setting and productivity to the next level. We've got all kinds of great and valuable tools available at MillionaireMindcast.com. With that being said, that's all for this week. Until next week's episode, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March 2 million and beyond. Cheers, my friends.